The reading for today's sermon comes from James chapter 3, beginning at verse 2. Hear the word of the living God. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, please look down with pity upon us. Your helpless and yet now redeemed, spirit-filled children. And as we dare to have your word before us, may we do so with trembling hands and trembling hearts, lest we should think what is false. Lest we should fail to have our thoughts conformed to yours. Please would you be merciful to us and so speak in and through your word, the scriptures, as we hear it now, that we may be made more like our Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. So we've been looking at James chapter 3, and we left off a few weeks ago, and uh, in particular anticipating this section from, really from verse 1 through to verse 12, on the subject of the tongue, that is to say how we speak. And if you know this book, and I'm sure all of you know it to some extent, you've all read it before, uh, you will know that it is commonly viewed as a series of warnings about the dangers of speech, and with some justification, because you look through it, you can look, for example, verse 5, second half of verse 5, the tongue is likened to a spark that can set a whole forest ablaze, Verses 7 and 8, the tongue is an untamable beast. Every kind of beast has been tamed by man, but who can tame the tongue? Verse 9, with our tongue we curse people. And so James wants to highlight for us the great danger of the tongue. That is to say, the perils that can result from what comes out of our mouths when we are foolish enough to open them and speak. But that's only part of the picture. It was interesting. I had a very helpful conversation with... um, uh, chap at the end of forum uh, three or four weeks ago when we last looked at this uh, on verse one it's actually the note on which we ended our conversation uh, over coffee and so on after the service when he pointed out well there's a positive side to it as well and he's absolutely right you get hints in verse nine with our tongue we bless our god and father and also here what we'll find in these verses is that there is a negative and a positive side to the tongue and what we need to do is to try and figure out how we can harness that which is good and use our lips, use our speech to do the good which God intended, while at the same time recognizing the tremendous perils. In fact, there's a, there's a, a sorry to start a sermon with a bit of philosophical theology, but there's a kind of really deep-rooted underlying reason why it should be that the tongue is capable of great evil and great good. Um, it was a great theologian, Augustine, who first clarified, after the biblical authors, of course, that evil doesn't have any independent being in and of itself. Evil, he said in Latin, which I won't try and copy here, is rather a privation of the good. It's a distortion or a, uh, a twisting of that which is good. So what happens with, it, 
with evil at the kind of most basic and fundamental level. Evil doesn't exist. Everything created by God is good, and there's nothing else that exists other than what God created apart from God himself. And God is good, and everything he made is good. Genesis 1, 1 Timothy 4. So what's evil then? Well, evil takes the natural capacities of a thing and twists them. And so what that means then is the greater the natural capacities of a thing, the greater good they can do and the greater evil they can do if misdirected. Can you see how that works? And you see this in the scriptures, actually. You think of the people in the, in the history of the people of God who did, had the potential to do the greatest good. Think of Samson, the greatest man in Israel, and think of all the chaos he wrought when his strength and passion was misdirected. So it is with the tongue. The tongue is like that. The tongue is capable of such great good. Think about what happened about half an hour ago. I baptize you in the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A dozen words or so which have totally transformed the identity of these three children. And yet think of the evil that can come from our mouths. Think of the lives that have been ruined by a word. And so our challenge today then is to try and put James a little bit in his context and try and understand how can we harness this good and not fall prey to the evil. Just a quick word about James, uh, familiar to those of you who've been with us um, uh, before, uh, on which note, a warm welcome to those of you who are with us for the first time today. It's lovely to see, I've seen two or three new faces or sets of new faces, families uh, who've not been here before. Thank you very much for joining us. We hope you have a great time. We're in the book of James and have been for a while and it was written probably... I think, by the Apostle James, the brother of John, who was writing very, very early in the post, uh, in the, well, in the Christian era, I guess is what you'd call it, to an infant church that was passionately committed to changing the world, wanted to live out their faith in such a way they'd see the kingdom of God come in their day. And so uh, that's a, uh, a concern with which James is 110% in agreement. And it's, isn't that what we want? Then we want to see the world transformed so that it reflects the glory of God. And yet what James had to deal with was people who needed, well, let's just say guidance <laughs> to make sure they were going about it in the right way. Because it is perilously easy, as we've seen before in the first couple of chapters of James, to do it wrong, to pick up the, the weapons of the world to fight the Lord's battles. So, for example, we saw in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, and 20, uh, James needed to remind that the anger of God that doesn't accomplish, the anger of man, sorry, doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. All these counterintuitive things you find in the book of James about um, how you're supposed to respond to suffering. Like, how would you normally respond to suffering if you want suffering, if you wanted to see your movement triumph? Suffering is the enemy. Suffering happens when something has gone wrong. And so James says, verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of many kinds, because it turns out the kingdom of God is established precisely in and through families and churches and communities that treat, regard sufferings, trials as joy, just like Jesus our Lord did. Um, On a positive side, what is it that will really uh, see a community, see a church transformed? Verse, uh, chapter chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father counts as pure and undefiled is visiting orphans and widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world and all kinds of unspectacular acts of godliness like that. You see, there are these deeply counterintuitive ways in which the kingdom of God is to be established among us. And you'd think, wouldn't you, you would have thought that in a day when what you really, really need 
first century Israel, 21st century America, is loads and loads of people going out into the world to speak the gospel to the nations. What you'd need is hundreds and thousands of men to teach the gospel to the nations of the world. And James says, no, 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 no. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, chapter 3, verse 1. Can you see? Because it turns out that the tongue, again, another paradoxical twist in the letter of James, the tongue as well as having great power to do good, has power to do evil as well. So we need to wrestle with this, because our our world needs the gospel no less than the world of the first century. Our world needs men and women who will live and who will speak the truth of Christ to it, no less than James' companions and the world around him needed that in the first century. But boy, do we need to make sure we don't get it wrong. So let's look at the the ways in which the tongue can do evil, and first, the way in which it can do good. The the tongue has astonishing power to do good. Look at verse 2. If you could control the tongue, just think, just imagine for a moment what the living God could accomplish in and through you. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone, look at verse 2, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. The word probably in this context has to do with full maturity. It can mean moral perfection, the good and perfect law, but here it's probably a little bit like it says in chapter 1 verse 4, um, uh, when steadfastness has had its full effect, you'll be perfect. Not morally without fault, but mature, brought to a kind of stable, mature manhood and womanhood. That's the kind of man you'll be. And if you could control your tongue, that's the kind of man you'd be. That's the kind of woman you would be. And then you've got two illustrations. Just think of the power of the tongue. It's like Verse 3, if you put the bits, uh, bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. That's pretty impressive. little piece of metal, this long, that wide, you can guide a massive great horse. I'll tell you about horses in a second. Ships, the same thing. Look at the ships also. They're so large and driven by a strong rudder. Even in the ancient world, the time when James was writing, uh, people were building ships that were 50, 60, 100 feet long. There's one that was 150 feet long. One ancient Phoenician king, I think, wanted to have a ship that would hold several thousand soldiers. It was built, it floated, couldn't move anywhere. It was so big, it was lumbering around in the harbor. They had to build a dry dock for it to get it launched, and they still couldn't move it, really. But those ships are steered by a little plank of wood like this. Think about horses. Both these illustrations are really dramatic. It's worth thinking about. In the ancient world, horses were probably about the biggest horses were probably like a modern Mustang. How big does a Mustang grow? Some of you Mustang experts had to look this up. You, a full-grown adult male Mustang, about 800 pounds. 800 pounds of beast sitting underneath you. Apparently, um, the world record for the largest living horse used to be held by a Texan horse. Did you know that? Back in 2008, there was a horse. It was a Clydesdale, lived just up the road in Richardson, northeast of Dallas. It was 20 hands high. A hand is four inches. Some of you guys know all this. At the shoulder, this horse was six foot eight inches tall. So I I can't see over its back, and its head is goodness knows how many feet above that. It weighs 300 pounds, this horse, like a ton and a half. Just think about that. Actually, (laughs) I I had to look this up a bit more because it turns out um, that horse is not the largest ever. The largest ever horse was uh, foaled in 1846, in a little village called Toddington Mills. Guess where that was? (laughs) You're right. An English shire horse. We have been breeding shire horses in England since the Middle Ages. The horse was called Samson. (laughs) 
It was renamed Mammoth when it was realised this horse grew to over seven feet tall at the shoulder, 3,300 and something pounds. Massive great beast. And it had a bit in its mouth that's about the size of your finger. Now, I'm told you can ride a horse without all that gear, but you would be nuts to try with a horse that weighed a tonne and a half. But if you know what you're doing, and this big shire horse, we didn't train them for riding on in England, they're, they're draft horses, they pull things, ploughs and carriages full of people. You can pull that great beast anywhere you like with this tiny little thing, just like you. Your whole body, your whole life is guided by what this flappy thing in here does and says. Ships are the same. When I was back at college, we used to do rowing. I was in an eight-man rowing crew. So eight men plus a cox. The boat's 62 feet long. You know how big the rudder is? Two inches. I once had a conversation with the captain of boats. He said, we need to get a a smaller rudder for our boat because the first aid keeps overturning, not overturning like all the way over, but it keeps wobbling when I, when I use the rudder, use the, the cocks for the first eight. So how big's the rudder? He said, two inches. Well, two inches? Is that all? He said, yeah, we need one that's one and a quarter inches to steer a 62-foot boat. And in the ancient world, it's just the same. You've got a rudder a foot long that will steer a boat that weighs hundreds of tons. And the point, I'm laboring this point because that's how powerful this little flippy flapper in here blah, 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 is. That's the capacity that your tongue, what you say, has to direct the whole course of your life. Think for, let me give you an illustration. Think of a relationship that's really significant to you. Might be the person sitting next to you. Might be your mum or your dad who's not here. Now, think of one sentence that you could say which would ruin or hugely enrich that relationship. Do you see the tremendous capacity that your tongue has? And, of course, there's a theological uh, element to this. If you think about um, how the uh, Old Covenant people of God, the whole of their life would have hinged to a great extent on what horses and boats could do. At the high points of Israel's history, when the riches of the world, spices and gold and fine cloth was brought from distant exotic lands by boats during the reign of Solomon. Boats. Think of um, the horses which at times defended Israel from their enemies, at times looked like a threat, and Israel in the days of the judges are like, oh my goodness, they've got horses and chariots, and God says in the book of Joshua, don't worry, horses and chariots won't be a problem because I'm with you, but boy, would they be a problem if I were not. Horses and chariots, the great armoured tanks of the ancient world, and they're the things that make your land fruitful. All of Israel's blessing in the end is captured in what it means for the land to be fruitful. How do you make a fruitful land? Well, the huge agricultural revolution that took place when people figured out that you didn't have to plough a field with your own strength. When they realised you could harness a horse or you could harness an ox and use the strength of this animal to bring all the blessing of God to you. And in the same way, the tongue, what you say, what you spend the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years saying could be a tremendous blessing to you and to those around you. The tongue has the immense capacity to do good. So let's just reflect on this a bit more deeply for a second. Our speech is a central way in which we reflect the image of God. We've talked about this actually in 
uh, Wednesday night Bible study a week and a half ago. We're thinking about the ninth commandment, the importance of telling the truth. And one of the things that we highlighted is that God himself is a truth teller. Yes, God speaks true words in creating the world and calls things into existence. Everything that is corresponds with his word. And you find Adam in Genesis 1, when he's, well, he's told you're going to be, uh, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule, let them have dominion. How does he exercise his rule? We'll look at chapter 2. And the Lord God brings every beast of the field and bird of the heavens to the man to see what he will call them. And whatever the man called them, that was their name. Can you see what God is doing? God is giving to Adam the opportunity to image him, to be like him. And the way that this is represented in this significant graphic way, how did everything get its name? Because Adam told it, this is its name. And it changed the, it's like the, 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 the first significant moment when Adam starts to rule, and the way that he rules is by speaking. You actually know this in your uh, professional vocations. Those of you um, who work in uh, professional contexts, you know that um, every discipline has its specialised vocabulary, doesn't it? If you're working in IT or engineering or teaching. Or, I was helping a friend a few years ago with um, an IT project to set up an online teaching tool, basically. And we're trying to talk about how to do this, and, and I'm helping with the website, and they're kind of building some of the, the, the teaching material. And we realized we needed to come up with names. We actually needed to be able to specify what it was we were talking about, because we're building this new thing, and none of the different parts of the, uh, the software package and the, 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 um, uh, the teaching tools have got... Na- we had to actually name things so that we could talk consistently about them. And everything has names. The way we speak about things is how we rule them, how we exercise dominion over them. And in the whole of our lives, every area of life, think of the tremendous significance of learning how to speak. You could, you could even characterize the final third or most of the second half of a young person's education in more or less this way, learning how to articulate true things about the world, learning how to explain something, learning how to persuade people of things. Even in the sciences where you think explaining is not, it is a big deal. You might use a language which is more numerical than, than kind of conventional language, but what you're doing is you're, you're putting labels on things in the world to show how they work. How we speak, how we communicate is foundational to our ability to live in the world. And you, you, we all know that either some of us firsthand, actually, but all of us in different ways secondhand, that the tremendous difficulty that a person has if they find it difficult to speak somebody who has a speech impediment, who has a stammer, and how, how that makes it so much harder for us to relate to other people and get on in the world, and how much more of an effort it is in those circumstances to do that. Speech is absolutely foundational. So young people, you, what, what you're learning to do when you're at school, when your mum gives you like another book to read, and it's like, Mum, I already read something by Jane Austen. Why do I have to read all the others? Like, no, you're... You're learning to articulate your feelings, learning to articulate what's true, learning to think rightly and to speak wisely about what's right in the world. You'll discover when you're a grown-up, if you don't know already, that nobody can tell what you're thinking. 
So often relationships between adults, have you noticed this? Relationships between adults go wrong because one way or another, we're expecting somebody else to know how we feel. And if we can't find the words to express that, then that relationship will be strained at best and ruined at worst. A few weeks ago, um, we're talking about the first part of this chapter. Somebody, a young person actually, uh, I can't see where he is, where is he? Maybe he's at the back hiding away somewhere. Hi, asked a question, very insightful question, about the connection between this passage in James 3 and Genesis 49. Those of you who uh, remember the uh, earlier sermons in this series will remember that um, there is a, there's a set of connections between James's letter and the blessings of Jacob to the 12 tribes of Israel in Genesis 49. Uh, Je- James 1 verse 1, uh, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, and James's name is actually Jacobos, Jacob, and of course Genesis 49, you've got Jacob blessing his 12 sons. And what happens in here is the, the blessings to the successive sons are echoed in the book or in the book of James itself. So if you flip back to Genesis 49, if you've got a Bible, so this young man said, so which of the blessings does this passage in James 3 correspond to? Very good point. And we just, if you look through Genesis 49, you've got Reuben, the firstborn, then you've got Simeon and Levi, the weapons of violence are in their hands, that connects with uh, the anger of man, doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. Then you've got Judah, who... um, the royal tribe echoed in the royal law that brings freedom, Genesis, uh, James chapter 2. And then, uh, well, who's next? Well, look at it. Zebulun. And what does it say about Zebulun? Well, he'll dwell at the shore of the sea and shall become a haven for ships. His border shall be at Sidon. Now, this is what's really intriguing about this. Anybody know where Zebulun's tribal inheritance was? It was not at the shore of the sea. It wasn't on the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't on the Mediterranean. You've clearly got some kind of connection here because you've got ships in James 3. Yeah, look at the ships. And then you've got an echo here with Zebulun, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Jacob speaking with such optimism. But you know, if you just go and Google or look in Joshua, it's even better idea, look in the Bible. There's a thought. Um, you'll find that the tribal inheritance of Zebulun was never where Jacob promised it would be. It may have got there, of course, when the kingdom expanded further during the reign of Solomon and then later during the reign of Rehoboam II. It's possible it got there, so it's possible the prophecy was fulfilled, but it's never said to be fulfilled in scriptures. What's going on? Is it possible? Is it possible that what's being highlighted here is a prophecy about the power of the tongue that steers the ships that was not fulfilled. How your tongue could do such great good, like the tribe of Zebulun, up with its border near Sidon, one of the few ports on the Mediterranean coast, so it could bring all the riches of the world into the kingdom of Israel by ships, which are these massive things steered by a tiny rudder. If all that went well, that's where Zebulun's inheritance would be. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Because it turns out, James chapter 3, that the tongue is harder to control than any of you thought. Can you see? It's the connection to a failed prophecy. Seems to be what James is highlighting here. We'll talk more about this in just a moment. The dangers of the tongue when everything goes wrong. There's one final point that's worth noting. Um, uh, All that we've said so far 
connects James's imagery of the tongue to individual people. Yeah, you notice that your tongue steering your whole body, you being a bit like a ship steered by the rudder. Well, just look more closely. Look with me. What does it say? Verse two: able also to bridle literally the whole body. Hold on a second. Huh? Where have you seen the imagery of the body before? The body is an image of the church, isn't it? Any other imagery of the church in this passage? Verse 4. <laughs> Look at the ships also. My goodness. Noah and his ark. The entire people of God, eight people on a ship. Who did Jesus call as his disciples? Fishermen. Spent all their time in boats. There is this theme, like a, a little strand woven through the fabric of scriptural revelation that identifies the people of God with those who are safe in the ship. The church fathers saw this in some of their writings on biblical interpretation. The stormy nations around like the Gentile Sea and the people of God are safe in the ship. So what does the rudder do? The rudder isn't only the thing that steers your life as an individual. My tongue will steer me. The tongue of the whole ship... Look up for a second. What does that remind you of? Turn it upside down, stick it in the sea. It's like an upside down boat. Oh, it's just a coincidence. Yeah. So the tongue of the church, then, steers the ship. Who's the tongue of the church? Well, there are some formally ordained tongues of the church. Just as in the first century there were teachers, uh, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. Of course, what James wants to highlight is uh, it's also possible to be a, a sort of informal teacher of the church, like we spoke about a few weeks ago. Simply by opening our mouths, we become little rudders that steer the ship. For good. Encouragement, edification, upbuilding, or for evil, ruin, destruction. And what is it that, again and again, especially the Apostle Paul is most concerned about in the early church? Again and again, in letter after letter after letter, it's people who are teaching falsely in the churches. And so, you see how quickly we transition. We, we've seen the great good, the immense good that the tongue can do. But inevitably, we get led to consideration of the dangers of what we say. Let me spend just a few minutes talking about this. James highlights that the tongue has the power to do immense harm. It's already implicit in verse 1. Just grab your Bibles and open them up again, and you'll see... Um, in his instruction that not many of you should become teachers because you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The implication then is that, well, watch out for people who are teaching falsely. Watch out for people who teach wrongly. I was listening to a lecture by Robert Rayburn, um, who's a, a minister in the PCA. Up here, I think he's in um, uh, Washington State, I think. Uh, he says something absolutely frightening. Words to the effect of no church will rise above its teachers. I'm driving along car to, in the car to um, uh, floor and decor to get some thin-set mortar to retile a shower. And I only swerved off the road. I thought, oh my Lord. There's a scary thought. And then you think of how James re-articulates 
the significance of teachers, it's, it is Parson Neil. It's me. It's also any other mouthpiece, any other voice that is heard within the congregation. Jesus was called rabbi, but nobody ever ordained him. There were other rabbis and other teachers in the first century who spoke less wisely than him. Verse 2, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, well, if, now there's a thought. We could have a quick show of hands, couldn't we? Anybody ever not stumbled in anything they've said? Right. So there we are, all potential shipwreckers. Verse 5. This is where it becomes most explicit, and it becomes very clear in the following verses. But verse 5. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Look, uh, th- that, the term translated boasts is completely n- unique in the New Testament. And so interpreters have wondered, is this a positive thing? Like um, Paul writing, you are our boast, which is a different word, but you are the thing we boast about in Christ Jesus. Or is it boast in the negative sense, the obvious sense, that we shouldn't boast? Well, the clue is that this is a straightforward allusion to Psalm 12. You've got your Bibles, turn back to Psalm 12, and we'll soon discover what James has in mind. When he's saying the tongue, whether it's our tongue leading our lives, whether it's the tongue of the church her formally appointed or informally self-appointed teachers making great boasts. What does James have in mind? Psalm 12, verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone and the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and, quote, the tongue that makes great boasts. And James wants to say, look, you've got to be really careful because the tongue makes great boasts. The godly have vanished. The faithful have disappeared. Everyone utters lies to his neighbour. Can you see what he's saying? We have to be ready to hear this shocking warning of the ruin that we could cause with what we say. And the underlying issue is, it's almost an issue of biblical psychology. The the Bible was doing psychology way before Freud. Those guys have been playing catch-up and mostly getting it wrong. Um, the way that people think is by speaking. It's why, it's why your parents make you write essays. You, know, you young people, it's like really frustrating when you read a book and you think, yeah, I know what I think of this book, and then your mum makes you write a book review. It's like, I already know what I think of the book. Yeah? Have you ever thought that? And then you, think, you say, I, I kind of know what I think, but I can't put it into words, which proves that you don't know what you think yet. It's the act of putting it into words, which is a thing that teaches you to think with clarity. It's much harder to express yourself in words. And so the the way that we come to a clear-minded picture of what we actually think is by speaking. And then once you've spoken, that's it. You've cemented yourself there. It's much harder to backtrack from something you've said than something you've never said, isn't it? Have you noticed that? Very, very rare. I had... This stuck out in my mind because it happens so infrequently. I was in a conversation with a young man about five or six years ago at a Baptist theological seminary in Britain, and we're talking over lunch and having this conversation. And I said something at one point, and he said, you know, that's a really good point. I need to go away and think about that. I nearly fell off my chair. Like, what do you mean you need to go away and think? Nobody ever goes away and thinks. It totally blew my mind. I thought, I went to the principal of the seminary afterwards. I said, I don't know what you're putting in the water here, Professor, but it's really good. These young men are really thoughtful. Because that almost never happens. Far more commonly, you've said something, ba 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 ba. 
And then you're committed to that, and nothing's going to shift you, especially if you've said it publicly. Fascinating conversation I had with Pastor Neil just before worship today. Brilliant illustration of this point. He said, um, I've got an idea I'd like to just get you to think about. And he told me the idea. I won't tell you what it was. He said, I just want you to think about it. And it hit me like with the force of like physical almost. He doesn't want me to say what I think yet. Because he wants me to go away and think about it. And he knows that if I say what I think, then I'm not going to think anymore. And that I'll be kind of committed to whatever it was I said with three seconds thought about it. Which would be really dumb because it was actually quite a significant thing he was asking. Such a wise man. Such a wise thing to do. To make yourself think about it. And so don't speak with haste. Don't speak suddenly because it's like you just anchor the rudder of the ship. No, that's the wrong metaphor, anchor the rudder of the ship. What do you do with the rudder of a ship? You tie it at 45 degrees, tie it off, and then go and sleep somewhere and see what happens to the ship. It's going round and round and round and round in circles so it bumps into something. That's what happens. Of course, it's increasingly significant as a problem in the modern world because modern communication technologies have vastly increased our capacity to speak. Yeah? Uh, mainstream media, especially uh, more recently new media, basically does, you could analyse it like this, it, it does two things. Firstly, it amplifies speech, makes it louder, makes it reach more people, and cements it in stone. How many political careers have been ended, or jolly well should have been ended, <laughs> and often aren't, hmm by something somebody said on TV, right? Because you can't erase it. You know, you might delete it from your timeline or whatever it is, but somebody else's screenshot. And it's just, it's just kind of interesting to think about it. We might have to think about these new media, especially when we're thinking about the, the final part of this section. But just for now, consider. You go back 1900 and something years. Have a quick conversation with the Apostle James. You say, hey, James, you know... In 2,000 years' time, it's going to be possible for us all to speak in such a way that everybody on the planet can immediately hear what we've said, and it won't be possible at all to undo what we've said. We can just speak, boom, instantly to the whole world. What do you think about that, James? Be like, like, are you serious? Like, this is this is going to be only like for really, really mature adults on rare and important occasions and are making extremely well thought through announcements that everybody needs to hear. So, no, 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 we're going to give this to children. <laughs> and and it's, going to be, it's going to be combined with other great technologies. Like what's going to have, it's going to have a little section underneath everything that everybody else has said, which encourages everybody else to chip in and comment and say what they think. It's brilliant. And, and what, it's not going to be possible just to say things, you're going to be able to hear things as well. And there are going to be these special things called algorithms. And what they're going to do is they're going to listen to all the things you say and then feed you a bunch more things that agree with the general perspective that you've already highlighted and what you say. And James is like, are you out of your mind? That is the stupidest communications technology that you could possibly dream up. It's absolutely insane. And yet here we are surrounded by it. And we wonder why our politicians are basically unaccountable, our news media is so vacuous, and our churches are so torn apart by internal strife. Because everyone just goes, ba 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 right? 
And nobody ever thinks about anything for long enough to realize that would be a really dumb thing to say, so I probably shouldn't say it. You know, the measure of the maturity of a man is so often his self-restraint. There's so much more to say, but I'm conscious time is pressing on. So we have time uh, when we continue from the second half of verse 5. Let me just leave you with this. Um, This is such a precious gift. We get to shape the thoughts of other people in the world by what we say. And in doing so, we, we get to image the triune God, who is speech. Father speaking the word who is the Son by the Spirit who is his breath. Let us prize and use with care and thoughtfulness and godliness and wisdom and grace and love this most precious gift of speaking. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, you have placed so much in our hands that it is actually frightening. Bring us to our knees, we pray, trembling with fear at the responsibilities that are ours merely by virtue of the fact that we're alive And teach us to live and teach us to speak, we pray, in a way which honours you because it makes us more like our Lord Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.